part of innovation includes being uncomfortable with something. That without that first piece of that formula, being uncomfortable with something, you don't actually have any change. I, I can't really think of anything that's come out of, uh, any change that's come out of when things were great. Why would you change it if it's working great and everything's you know perfect? And so I think about some of the best ideas, some of the best innovations, some of the, 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 the practices that we have in modern medicine or some of the solutions uh, that were referenced uh, along the way today have come out of pain. It, they've come out of someone saying, I'm sick of this being this way, and it's, I'm so sick of it that we have to do something about it. And so I come back to being an optimist, and I have to think about these things that make me uncomfortable, the things that bother me and how that motivates change, and how we can leverage that uncomfortableness to motivate people to do something different. And so I think there's a formula for change, and there's a formula for disruption. And it starts with you being so uncomfortable with something. You see something that bothers you. Welcome to 501c3BS. I'm your host, Zoo Velasco, director of the Gianneschi Center for Nonprofit Research at Cal State Fullerton's Mihalo School of Business and Economics. Join me today as we debunk the myths of the social sector. We will cut down the weeds and clear your path for organizational growth. Robert Santana is a kindred spirit who took a small boys and girls club in Santa Ana, California, and grew it into 66 sites that serve kids throughout five cities in Orange County, changing the communities they serve and the way boys and girls clubs serve communities. Robert was born in Santa Ana. Besides serving our country in the United States Air Force, he received an associate's degree in criminal justice and justice administration from Hawaii Pacific University, a Bachelor of Science in Child and Adolescent Development and additional teaching certifications from California State University Fullerton, and an MBA with an emphasis on organizational leadership from National University. He talks about the entrepreneurship mindset in simple, down-to-earth terms, and how innovation comes from discomfort. He talks about the importance of evaluation to success. He tells the story of how he started a pilot site that became the template for major innovations in boys and girls clubs nationwide. Robert now is a trainer nationally on his methods. He talks about strategic partnerships and collective impact. He talks about asking the right questions. He addressed the myths of innovation, which is perfect for our podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm just going to let him speak for himself, Robert Santana. A lot of what we've done for Boys and Girls Club has been referred to as innovative. And I don't know that I, at the time, felt that we were being innovators. Okay? I have a simple rule of thumb. Let's treat kids as if they're our own family. If you have standards for your own kids or your siblings or your family members, have the same standards for those that you serve, right? Treat people the way that they want to be treated. And so I remember feel like at the time that we were kind of taking this big leap and doing things different, we were doing something that was revolutionary. I was just treating kids the way that they should be treated. And so if it sounded like innovation to some people, and I got a lot of pushback as I was introducing change into my organization, uh, because in this space that we're in, in nonprofit, there are sometimes these um, these pressures for us to think a certain way, uh, especially for an organization like Boys and Girls Club that's been around for over 100 years. 
here comes this guy and has these new ideas. And so of course there's going to be certain people that are going to be upset with the way that we look at the world. And I've learned, and Zoot and I have had several in-depth conversations about this, I think there's a huge difference between a charity mindset and a social entrepreneurship mindset. There's a huge, vast difference between the two. And everything ultimately comes down to mindset. It's how you see the world that's going to drive how you behave and how you direct people. And as a leader, you're a megaphone. So if I speak a certain way, multiply that by the 175 employees that we have and the hundreds of volunteers that serve our organization, and then all those people become disciples of what I'm saying. So words matter. And so I think that this charity mindset really conditions people to come from a mindset of fear and scarcity versus a mindset of ambition and growth. How do we create large-scale impact? So I come back to this process, this formula for innovation. We have to first be uncomfortable with something. I'm so committed to that that I'm literally uncomfortable as I'm up here, right? <laughs> we have to see something and it bothers us. And people think that that's where innovation happens. You just find out what bothers you and you tell someone about it and then the solution comes out of it. Those are called complainers. There's enough people out there that just all they do is just tell you what's, you know, it's too cold, it's too hot, I don't like this, I don't like that. That's, that's not innovation. There's this next phase that I believe is the most important part, the most important uh, aspect of this formula, which is, all right, let's learn more about this. Let's go into research, let's, start, let's talk to people, let's do focus groups, let's, let's listen, and let's explore and discover more about this issue. And through that process, you start accumulating more information. And what I like to kind of describe is, what you're doing is, let's assume that you have this assembly line. And at the beginning of one area, there's a raw piece of wood that starts at the assembly line. And at the end of it, there's supposed to be a finished piece of furniture. Start to finish, right? If you, as the owner of this company, found out that only 30% of the raw material that started actually make it to the end, at what point do you walk the line and figure out where in the process is this falling off and why is it happening? And so this phase is when you walk the line and you find out, and more often than not, the people that give you the most valuable piece of information are the people that are on the line. They're either the customers you're serving or the frontline staff. Someone along the way knows exactly when and where there's the issue. And so as you gather this information, and we do a lot of that in our organization, we do focus groups and surveys, and we ask people, how would you improve this idea? How, what's, what can we do to make this better for you? The next part of this formula, phase three, is the prototyping. It's the testing. It's the let's 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 start playing with this and let's start creating some potential ideas and then start testing it in a very safe environment, kind of that beta test phase of, of things. And through that, you may realize that you hit the bullseye. May, you may realize that there's some more learning to happen. Once you test it and you modify and you tweak it, you're ready to turn a switch on. You're ready to blow this thing up, you're ready to scale this thing out. Now you're ready to roll it out. You've tested it. People have been included in the process. 
and now you're providing a solution to something. People typically see the end product from the outside. That's what they see from our boys and girls stuff. They don't see the process. They see the finished product. And they just think that we just turn out and just have a random room where we just keep throwing random ideas on the board and they all stick. The reality is there's a lot of stuff that happens behind the scenes and that by the time you go out, by the time you go public with something, it's ready to go. It's been tested, there's been people involved. And so now, as we look at that formula for change, I want us to think about these social issues. We have to be very intentional, we have to listen, we have to uh, you know, take the time to, to do that. So I come back to being an optimist, right? And so I, I walked into the Boys and Girls Club the very first week as a volunteer. Uh, tomorrow is actually my 14th anniversary with the Boys and Girls Club. I walked in as a volunteer. My thought was I'm gonna spend three weeks here, I'm gonna meet some kids, I'm gonna mentor them, and then I'm gonna, I'm gonna head out. That's, that was my uh, commitment. Here I am, 14 years later. And I was a very annoying volunteer. And you probably have had plenty of interaction with annoying volunteers. I, I was one of those people. I walked in, I was 25 years old, I was a student here at Cal State Fulton, and I walked into the Boys and Girls Club not knowing A, anything about the organization, and B, that I was annoying. So I would ask, like, what is it that we do here? What is it, you know, and I, and I use the word we, even looking back at it, like, what is it that we do here? And I, I kind of started walking around like I own the place, right? So I started asking staff members, what do we do here? And the answer that I got almost consistently with all the staff was, we keep kids off the street. And almost every damn time that someone said it, they had like this smirk and like swag to their answer. And it pissed me off every single time that someone felt so like proud of themselves and impressed with themselves that they were keeping kids off the street. And here comes annoying Robert, 25 year old, knows everything. And I just, I literally just said, I don't think that that's impressive. Anyone can do that. If you bought pizza and an Xbox, you literally can get off the street. First week, volunteer, not gonna say what they do, fire me. <laughs> so I'm talking to these staff members and I realize I don't know anything about nonprofit. Uh, I'm an entrepreneur by DNA, so I the, the the blood was driving everything at this point. But what I realized was here's an organization that has the potential to do so much more than this and they don't even know it. They don't see what's in front of them. And I, I grew up in Santa Ana, and this was the boys and girls in Santa Ana. It's a tough neighborhood, uh, street rules, right? So I saw stuff in the club that, was, that wouldn't fly today. Uh, I saw two kids get in an argument, and I saw a staff member say, if you guys aren't gonna figure out your, your you know, squash your, your issues here, you need to go outside and fight and figure it out. But that's kind of what the, it sounds like. I don't know, I don't remember seeing that in my textbook at Castle Thurston about how kids should. So anyways, um, they offered me a job two weeks later. Can you, can you work here? Can you run the site? And I just wasn't very impressed. And I didn't think that I would survive a job where I was so misaligned to the organization. And eventually they, they gave me the authority to do whatever I needed to do and really be my own self starter and I was not accountable to anyone, which I would never make that to the CEO <laughs> any employee today, but they made it with me. So I started a whole new site 
uh, across the street, and I just ran a program. I, I designed it from scratch. I just on a piece of paper, this is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to stand for. And within two months, they said, can you just run the organization and take over the drug operations and just kind of flip this thing on its head? And so I did that for, uh, for a year and a half of director of operations. And I, I tell you this story to, to set you up for what's coming next, right? So here I am, director of operations for a year and a half or so, and then the board asked me to become the CEO. So two, within two years of coming to the Boys and Girls Club, I'm being asked to be the CEO of the Boys and Girls Club. Wow. And here, the way that I looked at it was, I was a, I'm a poor Mexican kid that grew up here in Orange County. Never would I, would I have thought people would follow me or I'd have an opportunity to do this. So I, I looked at this as they gave me this huge, massive opportunity, and I have to make sure that I always earn it every single day, uh, and that they'll never regret this thing. So I came back to that first day at the Boys and Girls as a volunteer, and what I saw, I saw potential in these kids that they weren't being, you know tapped into, and I saw the potential for this organization to do so much more than become an after school program, so much more than just to keep the doors open and keep kids off the street. So I started changing the culture of who we are and what we stand for and what we would do. And those first few years were probably the most painful years because there's a lot of disruption. And I was the, I was the different person. I was the one that came in and, and, and had to shift culture. I look at the organization today, we went from one club, 12 staff members to 175 staff members and 66 sites and growing. And I'm surrounded by entrepreneurs, I'm surrounded by people that are ambitious, I'm surrounded by people who are selfless and think about this organization in, in, this, in this lens of ambition. How do we grow the impact? And the way that I look at it is, if we have discovered something that is so powerful and having so much impact on one life, then not only should we, but we are responsible to grow this impact so that other kids have the same opportunities as, as the ones that have uh, had it today. So I look back at what made me uncomfortable. It made me uncomfortable that an organization would raise money and then squabble it every year, just, just do good work. And I, I'm exaggerating some of this so that you understand how uncomfortable you need to be with something in order for this to motivate change. I felt it was not effective to raise a million dollars and spend a million dollars and have just done good work. Just like I think that an Xbox and pizza can just bring kids in the building, I think that we should do more. So I brought this entrepreneurial lens to this organization. What if we looked at every single dollar that we raise the same way that Todd looks at money? He's not here, but let's think about Todd for a second, right? Let's talk. <laughs> Todd and his team at OCCF have this responsibility to distribute money. Just an aside here, Todd refers to Todd Hansen, who is the vice president of the Orange County Community Foundation, who was both a speaker and a sponsor of our conference. And he said it, and I think Todd's a very humble guy, it's not easy to give away money, it's not, right? You have to pick and all that. But imagine if every nonprofit looked at the money that they had raised the same way that Todd and OCCF looks at how they give away money. So I distribute money into my organization the same way that OCCF distributes grants into the community. I assign dollars to where I feel they need to be. 
I spend money in my Boys and Girls Club like an investor. I'm going to put so much into this initiative and so much into this initiative. I'm going to put into R&D. I'm going to put into capacity building. I'm going to invest all the dollars that I raise every year as if I was a funder and I needed to make that decision. Imagine how simple an idea that is. There's zero, like, I'm not the smartest guy. That isn't like this, you know, wow, you just reinvented money. I did. <laughs> I literally just simplified it. And, I, and it's mindset. How we look at this thing way different. So I'm annoying. I'm a disruptor. I choose to be a leader. I choose to be an optimist. The thing about innovation and leadership, I, I want to, let's, let's, can I ask you guys for a favor? Um, I want to talk about a couple myths that exist in our world that I want to eliminate within the next few years, and I need you to do it. So I'm gonna share with you some things that I think are myths, and if you agree with me, your job is to go tell two or three other people and have them stop believing this BS, okay? The first myth about innovation is that it's always these huge, massive, gigantic ideas. That's what innovation is. It's, well, I didn't invent the next Uber, so that's not innovation. I believe innovation is almost always super small things that have sometimes the biggest difference. Um, I do consulting work with for-profits, and I was talking to a, a friend of mine, and he, he would buy companies and, and um, kind of put them in his portfolio. And he would tell me the first thing I would do when I bought a company is I would just kind of walk the line and talk to people and I'd find out it's the one thing that I can just do within the first couple of weeks that's gonna get some momentum going, really kind of get a connection going. And almost always it was like the simplest thing, it was like buying a barbecue so that during break, someone would make hamburgers and carne salad and all that, or there was a smoker's patio, it's not, not anymore, no one smokes these days, but there was a smoker's patio and there was no shade, and so he just bought them like an easy up, and this guy just became like a rock star superstar. Right? I'm not telling you he's an innovator, that's not what I'm saying, but what I'm, what, I'm, what I'm trying to emphasize is that we think of innovation as like these huge, massive inventions in a science lab, and well, I'm not Einstein, and the reality is that sometimes it's the smallest detail that makes the biggest difference. Sometimes it's just the way that you rearrange a process or the way that you equip your staff. And it's been mentioned a couple times today, we talk about it a lot at our, at our leadership meetings. Language means something, words mean something. So sometimes just changing little things has a major impact. So myth number one, if you agree with me, help me spread the word. Innovation is not large things, it's small things, right? I hear this one a lot. Nobody likes change. Raise your hand if you've heard that one. Raise your hand. Nobody likes change. You wanna know who doesn't like change? Sucky people don't like change. <laughs> and the reality is, nobody likes bad change. That's what it should be, right? No one likes bad things. But you wanna know who likes change? Who likes good change? Is A players and B players? Because they're the ones that are as upset as you are, as uncomfortable as you are, that the thing that has been happening since the beginning of ever has not been fixed yet. <laughs> Who likes change? Is good change? Everyone likes good change. But we condition ourselves 
to think that nobody likes change, therefore our goal should be to keep things status quo. As you think about this, I want you to think about like, what things need to happen in order for things to get better. And I understand that people need to process change. I understand that aspect of that truth. There's a, there's a process to how people should be stewarded through change. But this concept that nobody likes change, therefore let's just keep it broken because no, it's better to keep it broken than to fix it is complete garbage. And I need you to help me dispel that, right? Next one. All the great ideas, all the great ideas come from the top. Robert is the innovator. Complete garbage. David and Jimmy are here, they work with me, they know that I'm not the guy that comes up with all the ideas. And the reason that's true is because I don't know very much. I'm not very smart. I just know how to annoy people. I know how to ask questions. I think that there's a myth about leadership, and the myth about leadership is that leaders are the ones that have all the answers. I think that's wrong. I think I know where to go for answers. I think I know how to buy some time when I don't have answers, <laughs> right? Like, let me, that's it. Just right now, I need to go to the restroom. I'll be right back, Google something, come back, and sound super smart, right? <laughs> My skill as a leader is to disrupt. My skill is to ask questions that I know are gonna create discomfort, that I know are gonna lead to change. My skill is to take a step back and look at the whole playing field so that I'm asking the right questions. So many times we're so stuck in the weeds that we keep asking the wrong questions. And so much so that in my first year or so at the Boys and Girls Club, and as I was trying to implement change, I, I kept asking my question, what do we do here? We keep kids off the street. And I kept he just on, on a record, kept hearing that on the board and on the staff. And I finally just said, what if Usually questions that annoy people start with what if, right? What if instead of that, that's dumb, instead of that, <laughs> what if we, as an organization, broke the cycle of poverty? What if instead of trying to be a good after school program, we actually broke the cycle of poverty in this community? What if every family in this neighborhood had a relationship with our club that if they needed something, we had it. If they needed something that we didn't have it, we can go find it, but that we were a support system. And what if every child, no matter the background, no matter their zip code, no matter how much money their parents make, no matter what their color of their skin, none of those things matter. What if every child had a mentor? And I gotta tell you, whether it's food insecurity, homelessness, abuse, you can find all those nonprofits, which they exist, and every one of those nonprofits can find a way to connect with that family on their own time and in their own way, or you can provide a mentor to a kid. And that mentor sees the signs of depression before anyone else does and does something about it. Or understands, you know that that's the third time that he keeps grabbing the snack that we give them and he puts it in his pocket instead of eating it and I know he's hungry, what if there's something here? We've discovered that several times. We've seen kids during snack put the food in their pocket 
And after we talk to them, we find out that they're taking that food home so that the family can share that snack. Yeah. What if every child had a person like that in their life? You understand how, as leaders, one of our responsibilities is to shine a flashlight, or in this scenario, an iPhone flashlight, <laughs> on what we think are the issues, right? Because the way that I speak to my staff, the way that I speak to the board and my community of, of philanthropists, when I say, I think this is an issue, guess what happens? People actually listen. So I have to be very careful, very intentional with what I say is an issue and what I believe is not. So if I'm asking people, how do we do this? Can you understand how we develop something completely different than what it was before? If I asked my team at the time, if I were to time travel and say, how do we make this the best after school program in Santa Ana? We probably would have done that. We probably would have done that because I would have asked for it and they would have followed me and would have done it. And instead, we're a completely different thing today. Our philosophy, is to build nonprofits within our workshop. We have nine nonprofits within our workshop that we've developed or acquired. One of them is the Boys and Girls Club stuff, the buildings. We have that, right? Another set of it is school-based partnerships. This is how we went from one to 66 today. Let's find a way to develop partnerships with schools. I'm a big believer in the Swiss Army knife. I'm not Swiss. I don't like knives, but I just like the idea of this, right? What if there was a tool that had all these different functions, right? What if I built a nonprofit that had all these different applications that, could, that if I used something, it could also be used for something else? One of the things that we did was I looked at the Boys and Girls Club. Most Boys and Girls Clubs are empty during the morning hours. Why, is, why are the clubs empty? Here's a quiz. <laughs> those damn kids are in school, right? <laughs> so I looked at this building, and if it took enough time for you being in these buildings during the, during the morning, just go, man, this, this is empty. Lights are off, there's a couple staff members, but this is such an underutilized resource. So we said, what if we created this network of nonprofits and, and invited them to come into the club and then let them use the building when we're not here? And what if we said, let's find the nonprofits that we feel are gonna break the cycle of poverty. So we went to all these different organizations that um, you know, teach English classes, teach financial literacy, they prepare people for citizenship uh, exams. We have adults that are earning their high school diploma. We help, help adults learn uh, computer skills and, and, and internet skills. We have job counseling. Uh, we help people file for their taxes. The list goes on and on and on. We have almost 50 nonprofits that do something in the Boys and Girls Club. We don't charge them any fees. They come in and they're delivering a mission that we feel adds value to the community. And now we're using the building more effectively than what we were before. People refer to that as innovation. I refer to it as doing the right thing. It's the right thing to do because people in the community need these resources and if, if, we're gonna, if we're gonna break the cycle of poverty, none of that's gonna come from just us. Leads me to my next minute. An idea, an innovation comes from one person. The reality is not one idea is original and not one innovation has ever come from one person. I don't care who you are, there's no such thing as a self-made person and there's no such idea that was created 
by one person that locked themselves in a room, came out and developed it start to finish. Almost always, there's a group of people that hear that idea and they're gonna marinate on it, they're gonna add something to it, and they're gonna manipulate it and make it better. Someone's gonna have to write the code for it or someone's gonna have to go and build the relationships and someone's gonna, someone's gonna make it something else. And so as we look at these, you know, what the process is for that, that is collective impact. And that requires people outside of you in order to execute. And that sometimes means other nonprofits. That sometimes means, means connecting for-profit to nonprofit. That sometimes means finding a funder to do something. But not one idea ever gets off the ground by itself because one person said, I have this idea and I'm going to make it happen. All by myself. So, Go back to your communities and your sphere of influence and kill all those myths. Right? <laughs> I want to share with you a cool story that, uh, that, that I, I read recently. Um, Ferruccio Lamborghini. Sounds cool. <laughs> so Ferruccio Lamborghini used to make tractors, right? And he was very successful making tractors. And eventually he got into making heating and air conditioning units. And he became very wealthy. So wealthy that he, he, he was able to spend a lot of his money on exotic cars. And he used to collect these cars. And he bought a Ferrari. One of his cars was a Ferrari. And he loved having the car, hated owning the car because he always had problems with the Ferrari. There was, it was difficult to drive, the clutch kept giving out, super loud, it was, just wasn't mechanically the what he wanted. And he was mechanically inclined because he had this history of building tractors and ever since he was a kid, he could, you know, was very uh, mechanically inclined. And so he came up with this idea, he, he took apart the Ferrari parts and realized that these are pretty simple parts. So he set up some time to meet with Enzo Ferrari. Ferrari. And, and gives him some suggestions. And Enzo Ferrari was very rude to him. And he said, you don't deserve to drive my car. That's the problem. You make tractors, you should stick to making tractors. This is a Ferrari, maybe Ferrari just isn't for you. So Ferruccio, what does he do? He builds the world's first supercar, the Lamborghini. <laughs> the reason we have Lamborghini today is because Ferrari was a jackass <laughs> And he specifically told them, you make tractors, you should stick to making tractors. And the reason I think that's relevant is because early on in my career, I had almost the equivalent. Who are you to come into our business and tell us what you think should be done differently? I, I almost verbatim. My Boys and Girls Club doesn't have pool tables and ping pong or foosball. I don't believe that any of those things are preparing kids for the 21st century. We have engineering, we're teaching our kids how to write code, we have robotics, we teach the kids the violin. We are doing things that are completely different from what a Boys and Girls Club has done before. And believe me, I got pushed back and I still get pushed back to this day. Who are you? Stick to making tractors. I say this and I share this story because I would much rather spend my time and my energy and my talent proving the people that believe in me right than spending a lick of my time or energy trying to prove the people that think that I'm not going to do something wrong. 
I don't really care what people say if they're not on Team Santana or Team Boys and Girls Club. If they don't think I can do it, let them think it. I don't care one way or the other. I have people on my staff, I have people in my network, I have people that support this Boys and Girls Club, and they believe that when we say we're going to do something crazy, we will actually do it. And I'm more committed to proving them right than to worry about the long line of people that are always going to tell you you can't do something and are going to tell you to stick to making tractors. I understand that I'm meeting today with people from different backgrounds and different uh, trajectories in life, and I share this story with you because you're going to have people along the way that are going to tell you to stick to making tractors. Yeah, you should go tell them to go screw up. <laughs> Thank you guys. Thank you for listening to 501c3BS, deprogramming for organizational growth. I'm your host, Zoo Velasco. 501c3BS is sponsored by the Gianneschi Center for Nonprofit Research at California State University Fullerton and the Mahalo School of Business. Gianneschi is spelled G-I-A-N-N-E-S-C-H-I. That's G-I-A-N-N-E-S-C-H-I. Gianneschi Center for Nonprofit Research at California State University Fullerton and the Mahalo School of Business. Check out my Twitter feed at 501c3bs, my webpage at zoopvelasco.com, and my book, The First Hundred Days, on Amazon. The music is provided to us from our good friends at the traditional Brazilian choro group, Grupo Falso Baiano and Amy Molinelli. Find them at grupofalsobaiano.com. Thank you for listening. Have a great day free from BS.